I was just saying I did hit record button already, but if we want to say something before we uh, tape, I'll just cut it off. You mean something that would ruin my career? Something incredibly embarrassing? If I could think of something like that, I would, but I, I, I really have no secrets. <laughs> I think that's the wise path. It's like, <laughs> if you start off not having too many secrets, then, then uh, your career is not going to be ruined later. Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. You know, times change and people uh, get upset with you. So I just did this uh, um, public chat with Steve Pinker a couple of days ago. I saw you like advertise it on Twitter. How did it go? Uh, it went fine. Um, we, uh, you know, so we meet. This was a webinar, a webinar setup. It's set by set up by IT people at at Stevens, and so. Pinker and I met about like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes early to make sure everything's working and, mm -hmm. uh, and we're chatting and, and meanwhile, people are starting to appear. I can see people, uh, you know, there's like 50 and then a hundred people. And then somebody in the audience, Pinker and I are just making small talk. And then somebody in the audience said, uh, you know, we can hear you. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had, and, and, uh, I said, uh, no, I didn't know that. And Pinker was like, <laughs> taken aback. He said, you know, so this is like a hot mic here. And fortunately we hadn't been saying mean things about anybody that we know in common. Did he convince you that the future is bright? Well, I actually brought him to Stevens because I think that, uh, his case for progress is pretty convincing. Um, huh. And, uh, you know, everybody I know, probably including you, but you're entitled to be gloomy because you live in fucking Russia, <laughs> but, uh, and you know, Americans have had Donald Trump, but, um, still I, you know, my students are gloomy, all my friends and family and colleagues are gloomy and they all I'm think that, gloomy. pardon me. I'm not gloomy. Oh, you're not. Okay. Um, well. So, but not I because I... not because the future is bright and everything's going to be fine, but it's better to not be gloomy. I think it's it, your chances uh, at, of getting through this in a good shape increase if you have a positive disposition. Right. So that's one kind of optimism. Um, you know, he's basically when I say gloomy, I mean sort of about. I don't mean emotionally, you know, that they're mm -hmm. depressed necessarily, although I certainly know people who are depressed. I mean, uh, how they feel about humanity and the future, humanity as a whole. And uh, so my, my stepmom, for example, who's a liberal Democrat, she's got tons of money, you know, my dad died, and she's got even more money now. And, uh, and she, whenever I talk about progress, she goes, so ridiculous. The world is getting worse and worse. And then I told her I was going to be talking to to Pinker. And she said, uh, she sent me an email. She's quoting Tom Stoppard, you know, the great playwright. And Stoppard, I think he grew up in Czechoslovakia. And he quoted a, what I guess is an old Czechoslovakian slogan that says, a pessimist is a well-informed optimist. Right. And Pinker just says that, you know, actually here's all this information that shows that there are all these trend lines that are going in the good direction 
when it comes to health and wealth and freedom and civil rights and and uh, peace, peace, prosperity. When does he? When does he start the timeline? Like, what what is the earliest time that he looks back to? Oh, he goes back, you know, to human prehistory. So he's one of the the best charts right. he's and got is just showing sort of per capita wealth or I don't know, wealth generated by the world, by humanity as a whole. And it's, you know, it starts, I don't know, like 2000 years ago or something. And it's basically like a flat line along the X axis. Like you can't even distinguish the line from the X axis. And then suddenly around uh, 1800, it shoots up exponentially. So that's the industrial revolution. And of course, you know, the Europeans and the Americans uh, accounted for a lot of that growth initially, but now it's um, it, it includes everybody. It's, you know, the world is getting more prosperous. Uh, and Can you give me a definition of wealth? Um, in his case, he's talking about, yeah, that's a good, that's a, that's a good question. I guess it means um, income plus um, assets. You know, so if you own property, you sort of tally up all the property you have, and then you've got the income that's coming in. And for most of human history, like 98% of humanity had basically nothing. Right. You have the hand-to-mouth existence. Now, some of these people might have been happy. That would include hunter-gatherers who don't have any stuff except maybe, I don't know, like a little tent or a few pots, some stone tools but they had oh, you just froze for me but it really was literally a hand-to-mouth existence and uh until um and people started accumulating stuff in the neolithic era so that was maybe i don't know 10 or twelve thousand years ago you had agriculture you started to have some surplus food and stuff but then it still tended to be a very tiny proportion of people who had most of the stuff and so then you also got hierarchical social development but Pinker is showing that uh, the wealth is being distributed more evenly now. He, he has to deal with inequality, which is growing in some places like the United States. Uh, but he says that inequality shouldn't be so much of a concern as long as the people at the bottom are rising. And that actually has, has been the case. And, you know, a lot of my lefty friends, I'm a lefty, but a lot of my lefty friends just flat out refuse to believe this. Um, but I told my stepmom that I quoted her to Pinker and she got really excited. So she can't wait until the video comes out. It's not out yet. And she wants to see where, you know, I, I quote her quoting Tom Stoppard that a pessimist is a well-informed optimist. I missed part of you, what you said, because uh, the connection broke off for like half a minute, but oh. I, I think <laughs> I, I know the, you know, the basic argument. Uh, I wonder how much, I mean, Pinker is one of these like cerebral people who look at the data and try to look at things objectively and, you know, make, use, use kind of the, the, the intellect as the guiding principle. I'm not sure I'm one of those people. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, was and I, I was thinking about, you know, because I've just been thinking about Pinker for a couple of weeks now, getting ready for this interview you know, it was, he didn't give a lecture. I, I interviewed him. And so I, I read his big book. Oh, I'm, I'm on top of it here. 
um, enlightenment now. And so I've been steeped in his worldview. And I was thinking, and he's like hyper rational. And I was thinking, I like to think of myself as rational, but I'm also like, you know, I'm into some kind of crazy shit, like mysticism and psychedelics and stuff like that. And I was thinking, uh, you know, if I talk to you about Pinker's worldview, I wonder where that would lead and how um, how you would react because we also share an interest in sort of alternative ways of looking at reality and mysticism and psychedelics and, and all that kind of stuff. I sort of feel yeah. like, I, you know, I'm a pluralist these days, so I sort of feel like these are not necessarily incompatible worldviews. Right, I agree. My a big part of, of my uh, outlook is to try to put everything together, whatever, you know, opinion, perspective, uh, way of looking at things you can come up with, try to somehow marry it with its opposite and, and see what happens. In terms of progress, like I'm skeptical of it on I don't know on which grounds it's not it's not intellectual it's more like like let's go into the psychedelic mystical realm uh some of these experiences that I've had on specifically DMT and mushrooms uh and also I had some uh, I'll, I'll tell you a dream in a little bit uh that I had that has to do with DMT um some of these experiences make me suspicious of not even progress, but the concept of time as a linear thing of like present coming out of the past and future coming out of the present. And uh, I, I sometimes feel that what's happening here, you know, the past, the present and the future are happening all at once. And all of those things are changing. I, I guess like the multiverse version of looking at things would be compatible with that. It's like there is a million of different pasts and a million of different presents and a million of different futures. And depending on how you look at the situation, how you perceive that that whole, you know, multiverse, let's call it, uh, you can find a, a thing, you know, a, a line from the past to the future where things are getting better. You can find a line where things are getting worse and you can find anything in between. The the dream that I referred to just now uh, was, it was like some years ago, I fell asleep in somebody's apartment thinking, contemplating whether I should or should not smoke DMT the next day. And then I dreamt I was in the same apartment and there was some kind of a party, some kind of a gathering happening. And I was talking to a person that I have never met in my life uh, who seemed knowledgeable about the kinds of things that I'm interested in. And so I decided to, I guess my like indecision about smoking DMT carried over into the dream. And uh, I asked something or started talking about DMT and the guy snickered and sighed and he's like, why would anybody do that? Why would you smoke DMT? Uh, it just seems like a, like a worthless kind of pursuit. And by that time, I have had some experiences with DMT and I kind of shrugged and went like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I've 
you know, had some of these experiences and I felt that I got some of my questions answered. And then he snickered again. He said, well, what kinds of questions can DMT answer? I, I suppose some trifles like the nature of time or something of that sort, but who's interested in that? And I thought about that for a second. I was like, well, man, if you bring it up, I don't understand what time is. I would like to get a better understanding of that. And so then he told me with a tone of voice and a way of speaking that a person would have if they were explaining a joke that should not be explained. Like it's a, you know, whenever you have to explain the joke, it's a sad, awkward uh, conversation. <laughs> and his, his explanation was that time is the name of a comedian who's well known and well regarded as a, you know, a classic for uh, a prank that is considered a classic, uh, which consists of our perception of time, of, of this idea that present comes out of the past and future comes out of the present. And I don't know how would there be a before that prank, but uh, in his rendition, like before he made that joke, um, it, it would not occur to anybody to think about our existence in this way of this linear progression from one moment to another. And though everybody agrees that this is a great prank, this is a classic joke, everybody by now feels very awkward about us who are still not getting it. Like the prank was supposed to end with us understanding that we've been pranked and then everybody laughs. And instead, we're still living in this situation, worrying about the future and arguing about the past and whether the trajectory from the past to the future is better or worse. And everybody's just kind of like looking at us awkwardly like, this is sad. This is, the joke has run for too long. So, okay. First of all, just going back briefly to Pinker, the way I look at and, and progress and kind of serious analysis of the direction of history and, um, you know, the and possible outcomes and past outcomes of our efforts to make the world better. I sort of feel like we got to take care of that stuff. And that's yeah. related to, you know, sort of conventional, conventional, consensual reality. And one way to look at, um, progress is that it makes it more possible for people like you and me to do what we do, to sit around yeah. thinking about shit like, you know, what is time anyway? I am, I feel like I'm a product of a very sort of special kind of civilization where I've actually made, I make a living out of talking about really esoteric stuff. And, you know, I, food and shelter and those sorts of things are taken care of. And so I have the luxury of sort of being a philosopher, right? And that's really Family great. Case. Sorry. And you, you also have, uh, you know, you, your life allows, allows for it as well. And that's really great because what Pinker documents is that, um, you know, for almost all of human history and certainly prehistory, 
people were illiterate, they were extremely poor, they were just trying to figure out how to survive from from uh, day to day. So here we are, you know, we should be grateful that civilization allows us to do what we do. But then I just have to riff off what you what you just said about time. I love that. Um, I for, I've, don't remember if I've said this before, but because of my immersion in quantum mechanics over last year, I've gotten into some really deep ideas about what quantum mechanics means. And of course, nobody knows what it means. And, um, and this is one area where I diverge from Pinker in his book, Enlightenment Mao, he makes, he basically says, nature, the world is becoming more and more intelligible. Uh, no, no, it's not. Hmm. It's becoming weirder and weirder because of our efforts to understand the physical world through quantum mechanics and our under our efforts to understand our minds and how that relates to matter. Um, and one of the things that's happened with attempts to interpret quantum mechanics is that a lot of people think that like our basic conceptual framework for understanding reality, which consists of space and time is like not fundamental somehow or it's wrongheaded. And so there's some people who say we need to get rid of space. Space is just doesn't work anymore as a concept. Other people are saying, no, we need to get rid of time. Space is, <laughs> we need space, but time that's like, doesn't make any sense. And then some people are saying, no, we need to get rid of space and time together. And then, the, but the problem of course, is that their alternatives are so fucking abstract and, you know, it has to do with certain kinds of mathematical uh, models that can't be translated into anything that um, that any of us can possibly understand. It, a lot of it is what what I do understand of it is a lot of it is about relationships. Relationships between things are mm -hmm. what is fundamental. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just so that's kind of that's so vague and abstract. Uh, so I'm basically just saying you are, there's a case of convergent evolution. You're converging on this view of time that some of the leading theoretical physicists in the world are also converging on. Yeah. With a different method. Yes. Um, yeah. So I have a few reactions. I, I wonder which I should start with. Uh, let's talk about Pinker for a little more. Um, have you ever read Unabomber's Manifesto? Oh yeah. I read it right when it came out. I, I was enthralled by it. I, you know, I read it when it, he still hadn't been caught yet. Mm -hmm. And in part because in the, in it, he mentioned scientific American and mm. that there was some article that we published that pissed him off. Uh, so the FBI came to our offices and, uh, for a while they were searching all, all our mail because they thought that he might send a bomb to us. So yeah, I read his manifesto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, 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 that makes sense that you, you, you would miss it. Um, but I, I'm bringing it up because like his way of looking at the world, you know, again, not that I would agree with it, but it is in its own way compelling. And you could, you could see, um, you know, an argument that he makes there, it, it's not like just ramblings of a crazy person. And uh, his take is that 
uh, our whole civilization is a distraction, I, I guess. It's like back when we were hunter-gatherers, there were these real concerns that you uh, just described as as a negative thing, like you need to worry about your survival, you need to find food, you need to hunt an animal, you need to figure out how uh, you're able to reproduce. And that's what this is supposed to be about, and that's the kind of thing that brings you uh, satisfaction when you do catch that animal, when you do make dinner, when you do have sex, uh, and, uh, and when you're struggling with it, it's a struggle that's worth having. And then as we've uh, got rid of uh, these existential problems, uh, our existence becomes more and more frustrating because we were not built to sit around and talk about the nature of time. We we're supposed to be doing all of these things. And, uh, you know, if you don't have to worry about survival, you just start worrying about something else with the same kind of intensity but without uh, the ability to do simple, straightforward things about them. Yeah. And I sort of, like the way I thought about, about this or about something similar is, I've never read that book of, of Pinker's, but I've heard, you know, renditions of it and uh, I guess an interview or two of his. And um, I remember him talking about like one of these um, uh, kinds of data that he tracked is physical violence. And he goes back to, uh, I guess, fossils that we find or, or like skeletons that we find. And there's, uh, when you look at like the totality of skeletons found at age such and such, here's the percentage of those with broken skulls and uh, they were broken. They, it's obviously um, that person died in a violent death. Mm -hmm. And then he says that percentage diminishes over time, and this is a clear sign of progress. And I'm all for, you know, nonviolence and, and, and getting rid of violence. But at the same time, I wondered if that's a valid metric to to use when you're talking about whether life is worth living, sort of. Yeah. Um, because I can see an existence, like if you read, I don't know, the something written by Japanese samurais or uh, some, some kind of a person like that, a warrior who takes the craft of a warrior uh, seriously and as fate and as a noble pursuit uh, and you look at, I guess Japan is a good uh, example of a culture that has these kinds of attitudes within it, or at least like old uh, Japan. Oh, there's where... Western examples. I mean, your country, throughout Europe, they also had those martial values if you go back a few centuries, especially. Right. And so if you, uh, I think one, one term that I've uh, seen to maybe refer to something of that sort is uh, something like, oh shit, now I'm forgetting. Noble is not the right word. I'm forgetting the word now. Valorant? Uh, no, that's not it either. But it doesn't matter. The term, I uh, maybe it'll get back to me. But the, the point is, in some honor cultures, I think, 
in some in some cultures in some uh, you know systems of values yeah being comfortable being safe um just living a long life is not the thing that you really want to pursue what you want to pursue is an honorable life and an honorable death yeah right and in in like again uh, you go back to those samurais and it's like there are many situations that they consider you know a real shame and if you just die uh with i don't know some kind of like you broke some some kind of a rule uh you betrayed a person even inadvertently you did something that puts shame on you and your house that is something to avoid and oftentimes the way to avoid that in that particular culture was to kill yourself Listen right so if you use if you use uh pinker's metric here like you you find the person uh and that 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 has these values and you tell them world is getting better because less fewer people are dying violent deaths uh and that person is perfectly fine with dying a violent death or inflicting that on somebody else mm-hmm. there is no problem with that the problem for that person is to uh somehow you know diminish the not the quality of life but the value of that life or something the the worthwhileness of of the enterprise and these are all very arbitrary it's like people have different values and societies have different values and to get back to this view of mine or <laughs> i don't know if i possess that view but it's it's something that i get every once in a while of uh time being a suspicious concept and uh maybe my particular life is not the life maybe i've lived uh here a million times and maybe you are myself in some way maybe there's no difference between different people you know all of these weird mystical concepts then at the core of it however the situation changes you still have this consciousness that is trying to navigate a reality that it doesn't fully understand mm-hmm. and in some parts of the story um it involves war and death and uh physical conflict and in other parts of the story there are different kinds of challenges but all of those are just challenges of consciousness that uh is experiencing this kind of existence okay so first of all i totally understand the idea of um combat let's say being exciting i you know i want to denigrate it a little bit because it's been it's one of the worst ideas you know and it's of course entirely a male idea uh one of the worst ideas that are values that humans have ever invented and we still live with this we, you know we still all our media glorifies violent men and men who are good at killing other men and beating them up and and uh, all that stuff and of course um you know these values have been enshrined in some of the dominant cultures throughout history going back at least to the Spartans and and well before that 
I had to deal with this in, um, in my book, The End of War, because there's some men who love war and it's exciting. And I, I have met personally veterans of, um, of war, been in combat, who say it's the most exciting thing that ever happened to them. And they, they say basically, you know, you just can't imagine, you can't understand it because you're this ridiculous, wimpy peacenik. You don't know what I've lived through. And um, I can imagine it. And it's certainly, you know, you can find it in uh, literature. But I think it's fair to say at this point in history, we can conclude that war is bad. You know, so there are going to be some men who are sorry to see it go, who want to be, you know, become Navy SEALs and go out on dangerous missions and, and, you know, kill and capture people. Well, fuck them. You know, we're not going to sustain that part of our culture just so that tiny minority of people uh, can continue to have that kind of existential thrill. I, I do see the problem, and this is something philosophers have worried about for a long time, of prosperity and comfort and security sort of forcing us to look at the void, um, you know, the meaninglessness of our lives. And this is something that psychedelics and meditation and some of these other practices um, can, instead of being a solution, it can rub your face even more into the, you know, the emptiness of existence. Well, if that's our problem, you know, if our, if the problem of comfort and security and all that and increasing progress for everybody is that we'll have these, I don't know, if you want to call them white people's problems, uh, then I think that's great. Um, that's what I do for a living is worry about the meaninglessness of existence. And um, I really like it. I wish more people <laughs> could indulge in this or they, you know, or they can take up uh, trout fishing or, um, you know, work on their tennis game or become opera buffs or, um, or whatever, you know, science and art. And there are all these things that we can do and have done, but we can do them even more once we take care of ourselves. Um, what you say though, about the, you know, the different timelines and, and realities there is, you know, that does recur in spiritual literature. There's this, there's a scene in the Bhagavad Gita where um, the, you know, the main human character is, he's about to fight in a war, I think against his brother or some situation he really is not into. And uh, then Krishna comes and gives him a bunch of wisdom. And as I recall, what Krishna basically says is kind of what you just said, which is that no, there's, there's a time for peace. There's a time for war. You can also find this in the Bible. And now is the time for war. And um, even though this is all illusion, none of this really matters, you still have this role to fulfill here in this earthly realm. So you have to go and fight this war. And, um, and you know, that's from this kind of cosmic perspective where you, you see things as this kind of, cycle of birth and and death and rebirth and war and peace and all these things and so and that the idea of progress is a little weird uh, and and not really consistent with that cosmic cyclic uh view um but i i don't i don't worry about it. i i kind of compartmentalize it again i i'm you know the practical 
Pinkeresque part of me says, let's just, again, you know, we can get into all this philosophy, whether thing is things from a bigger perspective or cyclic or whatever, let's just try to get everybody around the world to have a decent standard of living. And then, then we can maybe do some serious philosophy once, once the basics are taken care of. Uh, more reactions to this. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the modern way of speaking about these mystical ideas of this reality as not really being real is the simulation hypothesis, comparing yeah. the world to a computer game, computer uh, model of some sort. And uh, as you were talking about the changes that this world has gone through, uh, which we're now discussing whether they really, uh, you know, you, you can put a finger on it where, what the direction it's moving towards and whether it's, it's been good or not. If you look at it, again, step back and look at the situation through that lens uh, of this is just an experience. Let's say it's a virtual reality experience. Then you're saying the genre of that simulation has changed. We've gone through a few different genres and it started out as, or at least there was a, a long period where it was like an action game, a survival game, find the food, kill the enemy and all that. And now we're moving towards something else. Uh, I don't know, a, a, you know, build a city uh, a strategy simulator or something uh, artsy, undefined uh, and, and uh, an open world kind of thing, multiplayer game where you meet with other players and decide what you're going to do with them. And the game doesn't limit you to four different kinds of interactions. Through that lens, again, it's kind of weird to talk about progress or rather it's not weird if you are rooting for one of the genres right it's like the we started out the game was of this sort and then over time it changed to a game of that sort and then people who prefer playing that latter version say we've made great progress uh but really is just a change of what we've what we're engaged with, I almost chose uh, said uh, what we've, we're choosing to engage with, right? A kind, a kind of game that we're choosing. And that I think is the main issue for me is the, the choice, yeah. whether you, you've chosen to be in a war or not. It's like there, there was some, I'm going to butcher the joke, but uh, I think it was Bill Hicks's bit about one of these wars that you always guys uh, have, uh, one of the American wars. And uh, he said something to the extent of, listen, last that I checked, there's no mandatory draft in this country. The people who are fighting at war, who are dying in that war that you know we're discussing as a tragedy, another American killed, chose to go to that war. As long as on the other side, it's the same kind of situation, I think all the right people are being killed and dying. But that's just, I'm sorry, I don't mean to step on your riff, but that is just so far from the truth. It's just such a grotesque way of looking at it. I mean, I mean, it is, I, I didn't do justice probably to the joke. It's part of a stand-up routine. It's supposed yeah. to be, you know, outlandish, uh, but, but there is, 
a kernel of you know there's there's a point there that is worth uh you know being looked at right yeah i i get the point it would be nice if you know all the people fighting in wars were the people who wanted to do that and then you know okay it's it's like it's like paintball uh except you know with real bullets and they you really die yeah the problem is that the vast majority of people who's who are um whose lives are ruined or who are killed by war don't want anything to do with it. You know, there are civilians who are dragged into it. And certainly yeah. the, the majority of the victims of, of our violence around the world today are, um, are uh, civilians, you know, women and children. Um, but this issue of, listen, I, I, I totally, I, I, I thought about this when I was writing the end of science, I, I, thought about, um, yeah, I like thinking about the long-term future. If we take care of everything, uh, we take care of our material needs, what are we going to do? My old idea used to be we do science. God, science is really cool. Um, and so, but then I, I decided that, um, you know, science is ending. And especially if let's say science is good enough so that, uh, we can cure infectious diseases and we can live longer and until we actually want to die, we're just tired of being alive. What gives life meaning at that point? And I, you know, I, I actually talk to people who worry about this and are thinking about, you know, like a thousand years, a million years in the future, what will intelligent creatures, our descendants uh, want to do? And the smartest person, to think about this that I've met is Freeman Dyson, the physicist who mm -hmm. died recently. And, um, and his conclude, and he imagined the future of intelligence as this kind of diffuse cloud of charged particles that's processing information, like a cloud shaped computer drifting through the universe, um, and taking care of its survival by uh, conserving its, its heat. So it's not defeated by uh, heat death and, um, and what it does, I, you know, as I said, what, you know, what's it, how does it pass the time? Mm -hmm. Um, and he said it, uh, it will think about mathematics puzzles. Um, <laughs> there was another guy I talked to named Frank Tipler, this kind of maniac physicist who wrote a book, uh, also imagining the distant, you know, evolution of everything. And, uh, he said that it will, that the, you know, the computer at the end of time, this giant godlike brain will recreate this will recreate, um, you know, the whole human adventure, it, except it will make it better. And he said that, uh, so for example, um, men, can have not only the best, um, the sexiest, uh, coolest mate that ever lived. They can have the coolest, most beautiful, sexy mate that is logically possible. So that, that was his fantasy. I mean, it's like, the problem is you get into trying to imagine what heaven should be. You know, it's not even right. utopia. If you've transcended physicality, What's your heaven? And nobody has come up with a good heaven. We that's so we need in this in this sense, 
I'm agreeing with you that that something like war, you know, challenges, struggles, fight. I just I, I was just struck by with with a delay, but how how silly that that phrase you just quote about the mate is. It's like you're 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 putting this whole wrapping uh, onto the idea of like I'm thinking about the computer at the end of time, and this is this is philosophizing about the end state of humanity, and in the end, what you're saying is like I want a chick, I want a cool chick, I want a smoking hot supermodel. <laughs> yeah, this is this is just like several layers of you know confusion and 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 like wrapping it in a different package, but you're just, you're engaged in the same thing that was at the, at the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, um, I, I, I love these exercises, you know, these are thought experiments and I love them because they kind of, they keep leading you back to the, the question about what's the point of any of this? What's the point of existence and what are we? trying to prove here where are we headed you know if you talk about progress ultimately you have to say progress toward what uh i asked pinker at the end of our conversation how good th can things get uh i quoted this other great harvard biologist um, edward wilson he wrote a book called i think the meaning of existence or something like that it came out like six or seven years ago and he said i think we can create paradise on earth uh, you know, like a wonderful, harmonious um, world where humans live in balance with each other and with nature. And I ran this by Pinker and he said, no, no, we're, we're always going to be struggling, maybe asymptotically, but we're going to have problems to solve. Always we're going to be mean to each other, uh, you know, because we're these fallen, evolved uh, creatures. But in a way, the worst nightmare is to think, what if we really do remove all our material challenges? As I said, I think this happens to some of us already. Then you stare the abyss in the face. I'm going to try to somehow segue from this to uh, the most recent DMT experience I had, which was uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were supposed to record, and then I canceled because uh, I think I wrote in the email, like I, I, last night I did some mushroom and some work and then early in the morning I did some DMT and some sauna. And uh, I'm not sure if by the, by the end of the day I'll be able to speak with any uh, intelligibility. That's progress, um, man. Your life, <laughs> your life is a wonderful product of the product uh, of, of the progress of humanity and especially your own fucked up country. Okay, tell me about. I'm not complaining. Yeah, I'm not complaining. Uh, the, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to say much. And then this is, I think I indicated that in the email as well. Like next time we talk, I should say something about this experience. Except I'm not sure is the if there's anything to say. Um, but there are there are a few ways it's connected to what we've been talking about until now. And I'm trying to think of where to start. So here's one. We've been talking about these speculations, thinking about the world, the future, the past. How do we assess the state of this world that is not 
it's not your life. It's not my life, right? The suffering that we, and it, it keeps coming up in our conversations, you know, the problem with the world, uh, the wars that uh, are being fought, the people in jails, the people who are starving and so forth. And it's not our experience. It's not your experience, it's not my experience. Directly, we're not engaged in, in these things. And one of the things that uh, these psychedelic experiences keep pointing me towards, reorienting me, is to focus on the direct experience, not in the sense that I should ignore the suffering that exists in the world, but in the sense that um, if, if I really do care about uh, all suffering or a particular shade of it, if there's a cause that I want to champion, uh, I'm not going to be able to really change anything unless my life changes it. And in order to, uh, to restructure my life in a way that it becomes consequential in the way that I want it to be, I need to pay attention to today, to me, to uh, you know, the resource of attention that I have to uh, my ability to do something on a given day or to lay in bed, not being able to get up because I'm just lazy and didn't sleep well last night and so I'm going to watch Netflix now. Then all of these concerns about, you know, if, if my involvement with the suffering of the world is limited to like watching documentaries about the suffering that exists in the world, then that's not really productive. And so that's one thing, the orientation towards the direct experience. And the way it happens is through the experience of, you know, the, like in this most recent case, I smoked some DMT uh, a bunch of times. And, uh, and I kept, so, so I had like multiple little trips separated by periods of ordinary consciousness and uh, in those periods of ordinary consciousness, I was trying to think like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? How do I, you know, the experience goes away so easily and the tools that are available to me ordinarily, my, you know, mental categories and uh, the way my thought works does not hold it. Um, and, and yet it's, it feels during the experience, it feels like I'm engaged in the most direct way with like everything. And so how do I make it actionable? How do I translate some, you know, this experience into something that allows me to, um, to improve my day to day, my involvement with the world. If it is suffering that we want to focus on, how do I learn to alleviate suffering? And so that that's, that's one kind of set of issues. And then when it comes to suffering, during the trip itself, I was thinking about, suffering was one word uh, to describe it. Another is problem, I suppose, just, you know, what it is that we're trying to solve, what it is that we're trying to get rid of or fix. Because I always have the feeling that there's something to be fixed. There's something to be improved. There's there's a problem that we're trying to solve. I'm, I'm talking 
both abstractly now, like whatever it is that we're engaged with, there's always this like problem solving quality to the exercise. If I'm talking to a friend about, you know, we're just like, like right now, we've been having this pleasant conversation. It has that problem solving quality. So what is the nature of time? What is, you know, are we making progress or not? To the, you know, more uh, intense, severe, felt uh, issues like pain or suffering. And so during the trip, I was finding these areas of the experience. I, to me, the spatial metaphor worked. I, I, I like made a mental note for myself that space is a good way to think about what's happening in the sense that like if you were to map out the experience or what the world is not not i don't mean physical i mean physical and consciousness and everything it's like it's a space that you navigate it, within the trip i was navigating some weird dimensions as if they're spatial and so there were parts or uh, regions of that space that did feel like this is a problem here. And those were one of the qualities of the DMT flash, at least for me, is everything that you're engaged with feels like it's connected to everything else, or it's even more than that, it's like everything is contained in it. It's not like you're dealing with an isolated thing about this uh, existence of this reality. You're dealing about uh, with like one way, one one point within this larger system, but all of the points are connected. Yeah. And so, that's and so quantum. I could find. That's very quantum, by the way. And so I would find these, you know, regions of this usually uh, unavailable reality that corresponded to various things from the ordinary reality. And this is from uh, a part of my body that's, that should be taken care of. You know, I should go to a doctor and figure out how do I improve my health. To uh, people in jails in Russia. And all those things corresponded to this, you know, the vision, the this, this, this trip uh, that I was having and I was trying to think I was trying to understand the nature of those things that I perceive as problems and uh, I don't I don't think I've succeeded I don't think I have a good answer but the direction of thought uh, that was present then and that uh, continues to occupy my mind is is connection and a lack of connection. So let's say within the human body, if there is something that is, uh, that we call a, an illness, it's a part of the body that's not harmoniously, that, that, that is not in a harmonious existence with the rest of it. If it was, then that the parts of the body that are healthy would influence it and make it uh, get better. 
if if it continues to be if the wound is not healing there's some kind of a disconnect there's some kind of a you know something broken in this process of the body continuing to exist as a whole and uh, different parts of the body taking care of each other and similarly in the social reality well one thought that i had was you know we keep talking about the suffering how much suffering and i am i directly involved with like like do i you know this is kind of goes back to this uh another perennial discussion about what's real and what can be you be sure of uh have you really seen or experienced the things that you're talking about or is it all hearsay for you and so i thought what what are the you know the the problems that i'm that exist in my life or in lives of people that I know, you know, something that I can get fairly close to. And it so happens that my life uh, is hasn't been defined by these images of suffering that we, you know, come to the first, like wars and starvation and things like that. There's still death. People still die. There's still illness. There's heartache. There's, uh, you know, betrayal. And and these things continue to matter. It, it, it's not like because there's a different kind of suffering somewhere, because there's somebody who's, um, you know, suffering pain because a policeman has been uh, torturing them in the prison in Belarus or in Russia. That does not dismiss, that does not, uh, you know, nullify some kind of pain that we don't assign this, you know, lofty kind of quality to it. Like if somebody just got sick and uh, is is struggling for no, there is, there's no connection to like the political realities. There's nobody to blame. It's just, it's just your body is not functioning properly and you're in a lot of pain. You're having migraines or something. Yeah. That is still suffering. And so, um, I'm I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I'm, I'm going to end with with let, let me let me try to 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 put this final kind of element to it uh, to the mix. So that that's one thing I was thinking about, like how much, how much, and what kinds of suffering that I'm uh, uh, that I have direct connection to, and. And some of those, you know, like I'm stretching the definition of the word direct here, but uh, as again, we've spoken about here on this uh, show, I have been a part of like political demonstrations in Russia. And then some of the people who were next to me in that street or in that square ended up in jail or ended up in, uh, you know, not in, uh, didn't have a long jail sentence, but spent some time uh, in a particular police station that uh, was less comfortable than you know the, the one that I spent the night in, there's like uh, some cops or sadists, uh, or somebody was beaten at the protest. So that that's closer to these kinds of images of suffering that we readily go to. And anyway, all of that seemed to me again. This is not. I wouldn't be able to defend this uh, view with any kind of rigor, but uh, the beginning of the thought process on this 
for me is this idea of connection. Like all of these things can be seen as disconnects between people. Uh, a person is, you know, what that's what a jail is at the core of it. We take a person and we isolate them from the rest of the society and that's torture in itself. Uh, when you have conflict, like a cop beating a protester, that is a kind of a disconnect. Like these two parts of the situation, these two clusters of consciousness are not connecting pro properly. They're supposed to be, uh, or, you know, at least it feels to me that that would be a healthier situation. If they, when met face to face, they could exchange some kind of information. They could exchange experience. They could, uh, engage in an interaction that would be harmonious again like like parts of the body are uh you know engaged like any 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 kinds of elements of a biological system and instead there's this clash that is like an illness there's like something happening here that's not it's not functioning properly and from these kinds of things to one of the things I'm, I'm now paying more attention to because of like for work reasons is the ideological disputes in America where uh, some people are saying that math is racist and some people are saying that racism does not exist in America. And there's like these two people are not going to hear one another. The view of one side and the view of the other side it's not that the view itself is the main problem here. The main problem here is there's no communication. There's no connection between these two perspectives. So they can't even each other out. The, there, there can be an exchange of information here that leads to a formulation of a more accurate or a more practical view of the world. You just have these like isolated clusters of thought or of people physically. And, uh, the last thing I'll, I'll throw in is it seemed again at that time to me that even like when I think of Putin, I think that's a problem. And I thought, well, why do I think that? Uh, if, you know, you can make the arguments about like, well, the system is not functioning well, he is the cause of this and that. But again, if we go to that like direct experience, like why that human being seems like when I think about that human being, I, I feel there's an issue here. And I thought that it also can be seen as this problem of disconnect because he seems to exist in the world that is like in parallel to the existence of the country. He's not, you know, he, he's isolated. He, he has the circle of people that he works with. He has that palace that uh, we don't know if he uses or not. He's, he's not a human being that you can engage with because he made sure, or I don't know, maybe it happened to him that way, but he's certainly not looking for more connections with people outside of his uh, circle. And, and that is the problem. The fact that the person that has the levers of power, the person that uh, could be you know, making changes to the system of the country that would improve the situation. He's not even a part of the reality 
of most of the population. He exists in his own world, and because of that, uh, his engagement with the rest of the system can be very productive. Um, all right. I, I've got a couple of thoughts. I'm going to try to put this in a mystical framework, and, and I should warn you that it's, uh, as usual, it's almost my lunchtime here, so um, we'll have to... Um, We'll have to wrap this up pretty soon, but the way the way I understand, um, let me just like talk about a couple of things that you said. First of all, the idea of life as a problem, and mm -hmm. that you're seeing this in your in your um, in your trip, and there are you know there are different kinds of problem. We're we're sort of talking about the conventional social problems. There are people out there who are suffering in part because of uh, political and economic problems. People are poor, people don't have good health care, people are oppressed, um, these kinds of things. And we want to do something about it. So lots of problems like that uh, to be solved. And then even just problems of health, you know, people get cancer, that's, we don't like that. We want to try to make ourselves healthier. And, uh, and, you know, we want more cool stuff to make life more entertaining and all that. Um, but then apart from all that, there's the problem of what the hell is life? Mm -hmm. What, what, what's the purpose of it? Um, where did we come from? You know, what's the, what's the source of existence in the first place? The big bang theory and theories of the origin of life don't really scratch the surface of that or the more further back we go in, in time, the bigger these puzzles become the problem of, of life looms uh looms larger and the paradox is that what the the mystics say some of them is that you solve the problem by by not seeing as at seeing it as a problem anymore and so there's this wonderful little footnote in the varieties of religious experience by william james he's quoting somebody who um, inhaled ether and, you know, they, mm -hmm. they went into some kind of trance and they're having all these visions. And then this guy is coming out of it. And uh, he says that at that point, he realized that he's all his life, he's been chasing something, trying to find the solution to something. And he realized what he's chasing is himself. He's chasing his own tail. And he realized that the way to stop, to, to solve this problem is just to stop and mm -hmm. be still. And so this is what, this is what, you know, the Buddhists say is, is the nature of enlightenment. You're just still, you're, you know, right there in the moment and then time ceases to exist and all that really cool stuff happens. The problem is there's still, if you're, you know, like not a total sociopath, you remember that there still are people out there. And so then right. you become a bodhisattva and you devote right. yourself to trying to help others. And that's what Buddha does and Christ and, and uh, Muhammad and people like that, supposedly. So that's, that's one thing about the, you know, solving the problem by just not seeing it as a problem anymore, which has like sort of ethical implications that aren't so great. But then the other, your other description of the, of problems being related to the 
disconnection between things, like the disconnection between Putin and, and other people in Russia. And there are all these disharmonies and we're not right. in equilibrium. And I see this in a mystical framework too. It's related to the, the goal of, I don't know, the unification of all things that is supposed to happen when we all become Buddha, right? And we're all one and our sense of ourselves as individuals falls away. And there, you know, there are high tech versions of this, the singularity, we lose our individuality and we merge into one giant computer. And the problem I have with that is that from my mystical experiences, I don't like unity. I don't like unification. To me, that's, that's the end of everything. And, uh, and so this gets back to what you were saying before about why some people are attracted to combat, um, because it makes life meaningful. You, you know, your, your life is at risk and, um, there's another person trying to take it away from you and you're trying to kill them. That's pretty exciting. Uh, your life is not meaningless at that point because you're fighting for it. Um, and so there's this weird tension between our desire to reach some kind of total ultimate harmony that would be heaven and our, well, I mean, I'll just speak for myself and my terror that we will reach that point. I sort of think of it as a universe with only gravity without any repulsive forces, a universe with only gravity, everything sort of being attracted to itself becomes a black hole that then collapses in on itself and winks out of existence. So there's nothing at all. Why, why is that the image of unification for you? Uh, isn't, let's say, if you look at a human being, uh, there's a microbiome in our, in our gut. There are all of these, you know, organs that could be looked at as a separate kind of entity. But altogether, they make up, you know, an entity that we consider, uh, you know, a unit. W isn't there that kind of, you know, you're talking about the world coming together and everything being, in a, you know, connected in a harmonious way. That doesn't mean that every part of that system is the same as every other part. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about this in really abstract terms. You know, you can... Um, I mean, ultimately, you can imagine us leaving our biological selves behind. Mm -hmm. And this is what's kind of interesting to think about if you take the singularity seriously. You know, um, there are various depictions of this in science fiction. There's the, the Borg, which is this villainous kind of meta-organism with all these... Um, humanoid creatures connected by Wi-Fi. So they form one giant mind and they're really powerful, but they're really scary. We want to cling mm -hmm. to our individuality. Well, why if the goal is to, is to realize the unity of all things, you know, you or me, thou art that there's no difference between us. We're just two different manifestations of God. If you really believe that, then you should want that ultimate unification. I'm just saying because of, you know, my big bad trip, 
I don't want that. I don't think God wants it. I don't think God likes being all by himself, floating around in the void. And that's why he created this fallen world with war and disease and earthquakes and tsunamis and um, technology that's constantly disrupting us and our warring impulses toward democracy and tyranny and all this kind of stuff and you know horrible people like Putin and and Donald Trump uh, that they you know they're to put the best possible spin on it they make life interesting <laughs> that's a good way to put it um okay so you should go son uh i'll end then with with a hook next time we we talk i need to ask you uh about your ayahuasca experiences sure um because they're interesting to me but also because our friend david paleski the artist and i would say mystic living oh, in yeah. seattle um uh he wrote me an email asking to to talk to you about that and to ask about them in detail where it happened, how it happened, how it was different from your uh, big bad trip. Yeah, uh, I'd love and, to. And all that kind of stuff. I love talking about drugs. <laughs> <laughs> that should have, that should be like a jingle, like, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, like on, on radio, they put these snippets from the conversation. This is the tagline. <laughs> okay, man. Uh, you know where to find me. Talk to you in you know a couple of weeks or whenever you're whenever you're ready. Right in two weeks. All right. Uh, always happy to talk to you, John. Okay. So long. Right. I'm actually I'm actually gonna hang up now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Nikita. All right. <laughs>